0: This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in Heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to uh, learn more about campus ministries and how to effectively um, minister to those on the secular university campuses. We pray that uh, you would speak through me, uh, hide me behind the cross, and uh, may Jesus be uplifted and seen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, how many of you are... Oh, this is just feedback here. Let me turn it down a little bit. All right, there we go. Can you hear me? Or is that, is that worse? Is that right? Okay, I don't really need it anyway. Okay. How many of you are associated with a campus ministry or near a, a university? Okay, kind of? All right. How many of you are not associated with a university? Okay, and so you are here. okay, well, this is a very niche um, seminar talking about uh, the uh, campus ministry um, potential and also some practices that we're going to be covering as well. And um, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I am the senior pastor of the University Church in East Lansing, Michigan. And we're located about two blocks from Michigan State University, which has 45,000 students. They have 3,000 international students. We have 1,000 Chinese students. And I've been there for seven years. And um, our program is by no means perfect, but we've seen uh, souls won to the kingdom as a result and I'm going to be sharing some of the stories and experiences that we've been having. So this first one I'm going to be doing like a broad sketch and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the experiences and then uh, share a little bit about the philosophy of campus ministries and then in our second session we'll go into more of the practice and then third session will be practice as well. So philosophy, practice, practice, that's the way we're going to go. Um, Pastor Israel Ramos is supposed to team teach this with me. He was supposed to take th- the second set of three. He's not here. Um, Keep him in your prayers because his brother passed away, his older brother. So please pray for Pastor Ramos. So he's not going to be here. So yeah, so stick with me if you can through the first three. And then after that, um, there's a lot of other good seminars to go to. I'll probably be popping in one as well. So that they'll give you a little bit of the outline of what we're doing. So first three seminars I'll be doing. Pastor Israel is not here because of the death of his brother. So And the first seminar is going to be more philosophy and the general sketch. And then second and third is going to be more of the practice as well. All right? All right, so let's start out. This is a quotation I was actually sharing with a gentleman during lunch. Uh, Can everyone see it? This is from Dr. Charles Malik. He is the former UN Secretary General. And he says, change the university and you change the world. Change the university can you change the world? This is uh, an evident reality that when you reach people at a university, um, these are some of the brightest minds, and the potential that you have of impacting um, whatever society that they are part of uh, is is quantified. Um, when would you rather have someone become a Seventh Day Adventist at twenty or seventy? You, know, you think about all of the compound time that they would have lost now don't get me wrong i would love to baptize anyone at any age but when i baptize someone at 50 i recognize that they come with a lot of baggage they have all those neuropathways pathways and those lifestyle habits maybe they're divorced maybe they have multiple marriages maybe they have stepchildren and they have a lifelong uh, uh, just lifelong lifestyle that they have to fight against but if you get someone at 20 and you baptize them, then you have their whole life, just not counting just the tithe, but but their own personal resources that they can put into God's kingdom. This is just not working for me. Let me just, just go up here. Testing. All right, that's better. Okay. Even though it is a smaller group. Okay, that's better. All right, change the university and you change the world. And when you look at every major revolution, you will see that it has always been associated with a university. You look at the Counter-Reformation and the Jesuits, what they did to counteract the Reformation. What did they do? They started to educate. That was what they did. One Jesuit priest said that if you give me a child until he's seven, Um, Anyone can have him afterwards, and what the Jesuit order did was that they went out and infiltrated into the schools of Europe, into the Protestant schools, and started to educate, and in several generations, you can see that the Counter-Reformation has been successful, who is the current uh, pope. He's the first Jesuit uh, of the Jesuit order, that is the Pope, and I, I'm not the person that says there's a Jesuit under every bush or things like that, but that, is the, that was the philosophy, and the Jesuit order was put in there to bring the Protestant churches back to the Mother Church. And the mechanism through how they did this was through the university. And the Counter-Reformation has been very successful. We live in a time that is unprecedented when the churches of America are going back to Rome, and it started at the university. You look at the postmodern revolution, postmodernism, which we're experiencing today. Many people don't know that in 1927, a professor, Dr. Martin Heidegger, he was a teacher at a university, wrote a book called Time and Being, and he started the postmodern revolution. Immanuel Kant was a professor and philosopher. He started the modern revolution. You look at every major revolution, look at what Jesus did. He was called a teacher. He trained 12 men, turned the world upside down in one generation. Education and revolution are linked together, and we have a tremendous po- potential as Seventh-day Adventists that are associated with a university or are close to a university uh, to, to make a significant impact in our world. So change the university, and you change the world. The impact that we can make on these university campuses is is something that we cannot uh, overlook, and I'll be telling some experiences that we've that we've had in, in regards to this. We've touched just uh, a tip of the iceberg when it comes to the impact of campus ministries. All right, uh, let me tell you. Uh, we we talk about prayer, but this this is how I want to begin, and then we'll go into the, some of the practice. But about five years ago, at the church that I'm pastoring in, we started. Uh, we were at prayer meeting, and one of my members uh, challenged me and said, oh, Pastor, uh, we need to pray more, because today's Adventist prayer meeting is anything but praying. You know, you pray a little bit in the beginning, and then you have a Bible study. It's really a Bible study, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they said, we need to have sacrificial prayer. So I said, oh, okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's see what we can do. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. This Sunday morning, I'll be at the church, uh, for sacrificial prayer at at 4 a.m. And their eyes got wide, and they were like, oh, my. And I said, look, I'll be at here every Sunday at 4 a.m. to pray from 4 to 6. Now, you recognize if you get up at, you know, I have to get up at 3 a.m. to get to church at 4 a.m. And sometimes on Saturday night, because of visits or whatever, church activities, I wouldn't go to bed at 11. So it's just a very few hours of sleep. So I thought this was sacrificial. And I didn't think anyone would be there, but they showed up 4 a.m. And we did this for almost a year, six to seven months, and uh, just the transformation was incredible. And then we moved it eventually down to seven, from seven to nine, we started praying. And that's, that's what we've been doing to this day. Uh, for the past past five years, we've been praying from seven to nine. Now, let me tell you some of the things that have happened as a result of this prayer session. It's a very simple. Uh, we start with singing, and we share some testimonies, and then we have uh, sharing a prayer request, and then and then we pray. Okay, We go around and pray, and, and we pray for at least an hour and a half, an hour uh, or so uh, in the morning. Uh, when we first started praying, our church budget was in free fall. It was 2008, the Great Recession, and it was dramatically hitting our church. I'm in Michigan, if that tells you anything. And <clears throat> Our, our church bu- And I, I was a brand-new pastor. I started in February, and I was pastoring. And, and when you look at the church budget and you start seeing it go the other direction, you start to get a little nervous as a pastor. And by, by the fall, the church budget was in a several-thousand-dollar deficit. It was $10,000 in the red. And it, 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 there was no end to it. They started slashing all of these programs at our church, And we started praying, and then just the miracle of miracles happened. The the church budget started inching back up, and by the time we ended our fiscal year in July, we ended with a surplus. The next year, we ended with a surplus again. The following year, we ended with a surplus, and last year, we ended with a $34,000 surplus in our church budget. Now, I, I didn't get my Harvard MBA. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know anything about finances. But this, this is what we witnessed. Now, our our local giving doubled, has doubled in the past five years. All right? And I'm just telling you, the only thing that we changed is, is prayer. Okay? We doubled our local church giving. It started with me and a locally uh, sponsored Bible worker. And in the past five years, we went from... Me, to now we have an associate, now we have a Bible worker, we have a web pastor, and we have an administrative pastor that's a volunteer. This is in my, just this little church, and these are all locally sponsored, all locally funded. Our tithe has, has doubled in the past five years as well. So these are, these are just the things that have happened, and the only thing that we've changed is, is prayer. Prayer okay? Ellen White says something, that through prayer, we can move the arm that moves the world. And when you're on these secular universities, um, it's not rocket science, but I really believe, now I'm going to be sharing some other practical, and not that this isn't practical, but some technical methodology and things like that, but, but I really want to encourage to bathe your ministry in prayer, whatever it may be, whether you're associated with a church, campus ministry, uh, there needs to be a significant time in prayer. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this—not a significant time. Let's look at the prayer life of Jesus. Um, Mark chapter one, verse thirty-four. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. All right, Jesus was a powerful person that healed physically you can see he healed various diseases and then he cast out many demons all right so he was healing the body and the soul this was the most powerful revolution in history but look at the next verse so this is his public life all right verse 34 public life casting out demons healing the sick just powerful public life but the next verse is is intentionally put there i believe by mark to show us where the power came from and look at verse 35 now in the morning Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Okay? So you can see that here, Mark, by association, is sharing with us that there is some sort of relationship between verse 34 and verse 35. Verse 34, powerful public persona. Look at his private life. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out to a solitary place, and there he prayed. In the morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but. A long while before daylight, scholars believe that this is the first watch before daylight, and it's between 3 to 4 AM in the morning. This is Jesus spending time in prayer. So radical prayer life, powerful public life. The two always go together. If you want to have a powerful public ministry, you need to have a radical prayer life. Now, I'm not naturally a morning person. um, But by the grace of God, uh, I've developed that habit, and it's something that we can be intentional about. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, very quickly, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Um, Luke chapter 9, verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John with him and went up to the mountain and prayed. I can go on and on. It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent whole nights, uh, the whole night in prayer to God. But he, Jesus himself, would often slip away in the wilderness to pray. All right. So this is, this is remarkable, the, the life of Jesus. Now, there have been a few times that I did pray all night. Uh, a number of years ago, I was working as a Bible worker at an evangelistic series in, in South Central Los Angeles. And uh, we pitched a tent on Florence and Figueroa. If anyone's here from Los Angeles, it's like the heart of south central LA. And um, it's called Prostitution Lane. We pitched a tent there, no mail out, just went door to door. And we saw miracles. That, that tent was filled up with a thousand people on Saturday nights. And one of the things that we did is every other night, uh, I wouldn't recommend this on a regular basis, but we would pray all night, every other night. Incredible. Okay. Uh, for at least four weeks, we did this. We'd, we'd go door to door, ask them for prayer requests, and then, and then Bible studies, and we'd have a list. I'd have a list of like 200 people that I'd be praying for on my list uh, all night. And it was, it, was, it was remarkable. I remember one night uh, I fell asleep, and, uh, and they all left me. <laughs> and it was terrible because I got up and I was like, oh, no, where'd they go? And, but, but I saw miracles. I saw people from, from the door. I was the first person that knocked on the door to the evangelistic series baptism. And this was during my college days, and it changed my life. I remember just crying tears of joy as I saw the person that I had knocked on the door go into the waters of baptism. It transformed my, my experience. And and the reason I believe is because we were we were working but we were praying as well. Okay? So Jesus prayed all night. I'm not saying we should do this every night, but when you want to see God move in a powerful way, okay. Uh, we need to pray. We need to pray. So just a quote on the impact of Jesus Christ. We know that he made impact in his five-volume work on uh, five volume work on world history. Historian and religious skeptic H.G. Wells found himself devoting the most space to Jesus Christ. He wrote, A historian like myself cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving Jesus of Nazareth the foremost place. All right. Of um, all the armies that ever marched, of all the navies that ever sailed, of all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. So Jesus started his ministry bathed in prayer, and this cannot be overlooked and understated in regards to campus ministry. We need to be spending significant time in prayer. If we are not, we cannot expect great things to happen. Okay. It's a very simple but hard to do thing, and every spiritual revolution would, it can be traced to a person of, of prayer. Um, I'm just going to move on very quickly. Um, you look at Martin Luther, spend time in prayer from the place, a secret place of prayer, came the power that shook the world in the Reformation. Luther did not uh, fail to devote three hours each day to prayer, and these were taken from that portion of the day most favorable to study. So Luther. Spent significant time in prayer, reformation. Um, You have other instances. I'm going to go very quickly. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, this is a quote I love. The man who commanded, Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon is the man who for hours lay prostrate upon the earth in prayer in the camp of Gildow. The men of prayer are the men of what? Is anyone here today? All right, the men of prayer are the men of what? Oh, the men of prayer are the men of power. Okay. Um, God shapes the world through prayer. Prayer is God's singular condition to move ahead in his son kingdom. Therefore, the, the believer who is the most highly skilled in prayer will do the most for God. And the secret of success in Christ's kingdom is the ability to pray. Okay. Ellen White, by your fervent prayer of faith, you can move the arm that moves the world. Prayer is the key in the hand of faith that unlocks heaven's storehouse. All right. Now, I think you get the point. Prayer is essential. Your ministry needs to start with prayer. Ellen White says we need to do two things. We need to pray and work. Okay, now I'm going to transition into the work part of it. And I want to share with you a few few testimonies that uh, we've had the privilege of experiencing the last few years. Uh, This is someone that is uh, dear to our hearts at the University Church. His name is Christian Bull. One of our students was going door-to-door in the south, south part of Lansing and uh, met Christian. Uh, long story short, he started taking Bible studies and then uh, came to our church, became baptized, uh, was baptized. Uh, we baptized his mother, his brother, his aunt, and we're working on his dad. Uh, Christian then went on to Southern Adventist University. He gradu- He's graduating this year, and he... Uh, he will be likely a pastor either in uh, Texas or New York State. So this is just remarkable. This happened about three, four years ago uh, through Campus Ministries. We're going door to door, met this individual, and now he's an, an Adventist pastor. So change the university, change the world. Remarkable. It's it's incredible to see the turnaround, and and you see the the uh, the. St- the span in which a person goes from baptism to becoming a worker, it's very short, okay? That's why um, Solomon says, remember God in the days of your youth, because if you get someone early, the turnaround time for becoming a soul winner is a lot faster. All right, here's another gentleman. Uh, this is a uh, gentleman right here, okay? His name is Anthony Burrell. He's the son of a Baptist minister. His dad's a pastor of a Baptist church in Florida. He was at uh, Michigan State University as uh, a jazz musician, had a full scholarship to a jazz program, $40,000 a year. And he was the rising star in the program, jazz player. And uh, I heard him play the saxophone a few times, not jazz, but uh, he's he's remarkable, had a a future ahead of him. Uh, fully sponsored. Um, one of our students was in the music program, and uh, his name is Carlo Dorvet, and he had a burden for for souls. And so he asked Anthony, he said, hey, let's study the Bible together. And Anthony would later tell you, he said, oh, you know, I'm going to show this guy a thing or two. And, and Carlo studied with him a Daniel 2, just a basic study on Daniel 2. And Anthony was like, oh my, I've never heard this kind of stuff in my life. He said, Carlo, you're a scholar. I can't believe this. You know, Daniel too. This is incredible. And uh, Anthony's, I mean, and Carlo's like, oh, you haven't heard nothing yet. All right. And so, and so this is my associate pastor, Daniel Jean-Francois. So Anthony uh, then studies with Daniel. And this was an unusual study because typically you don't go this fast, but Daniel was going through the Antichrist and he wasn't going to reveal him. But Anthony said, hey, you've, you've got to tell me who this is. Right. So, Daniel just went in, told him who the Antichrist was, and then, and then at the end he left a teaser and he said the Antichrist is going to change times and laws. And then he was like, what, what's the law? Then he studied with him about the Sabbath. And this guy's worldview just just dramatically changed. Um, and you can imagine the difficulty that this gentleman is going through. He's grown up in a Baptist home. His dad is a Baptist minister and he makes the decision to join the Seventh-day Adventist church. He called his father when he made the decision, and uh, his his dad gave him his support. And then after he was baptized, he sat down in my office. Now, we never mentioned anything about jazz, okay, at least at this point. That didn't come up in the conversation. We baptized him and. And he said he was in the he was in the cafeteria where he was working, and he just felt the Lord impressing his heart to um, that he could no longer continue in the jazz program anymore. So he sat in my office and said, "Pastor, I don't know what to do. If I if I walk away from this, I lose everything." He said, "I lose everything. I'm going to have to move out of the dorm. I lose forty thousand dollars in annual scholarship. It's just." Is, this is the big decision that he needs to make. We prayed with him. He dropped out of the program. This was in the fall. Now we're like, now what are we going to do with him, right? Said, I mean, you, you, you call this person a decision. He walks away from the jazz program, and he called his father to get advice. And you know what his dad told him? He said, he says, more than anything, son, I just want you to follow your convictions. Wow. You know, that's, that's what he told him. And so he walked away and we're like, "Oh, what do we do with him now? This is fall. He he doesn't have a place to live, you know? And, and we feel responsible because we've just called this person to join the Remnant Church and he's he's walked away from everything. And the people, the professors in the program think this man is crazy joining a cult, okay? That that's causing him to walk away and even some of our members were were just not, not, not sure that he made the right decision because we, we have different viewpoints. And they're like, look, you can, you can serve God with jazz and you don't have to drop out of the program. This is what some of our members were telling him. But we said, look, I told him, I said, look, you need to follow where the Lord's leading you. And you know that if you stay in this program, it's going to lead you away from the Lord. Because guess what? The majority of the performances are on Friday night and Sabbath. That's when the jazz programs are. And if you go to, to the history of jazz, you know that it's anything but Christian when you when you go back on it. So he felt convicted in that in that realm. We we prayed about it. It just so happened that Emmanuel Institute, uh, which is a training program, kind of like a Rise or Avco in Michigan, was was just starting up. So we called out the called the director and said, "Look, is there something we can do? Can you can you?" accept him, and then we'll figure out a way to pay for it. So he went down there for three-month program. Uh, all the funds came in. He came back as a Bible worker and went canvassing the following summer. And right now, he's at Southern Adventist University studying to be a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Can you say amen? Praise God. I mean, this, is, this just happened last year. Okay, Anthony Burrell went from son of a Baptist preacher, to studying to be a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And uh, he sent me a picture when he first went to Southern to register. It was a picture of him and his dad next to the sign at Southern. You know, it's just remarkable, remarkable what's taking place. Anthony Burrell is right now studying to be a pastor. And I think to myself, what if Carlo had never opened his mouth in that Bible study? He might have become a Seventh-day Adventist someday, but look at all the wild oats he would have sowed during his life, okay? And maybe got baptized at 50, but then you've lost that prime time of your life, and right now he's just, he's just on fire for God. Uh, it's, it's interesting because he started giving Bible studies this year um, to some of his associates uh, at MSU, and we just baptized a couple months ago, um, one of his Bible study contacts. So you can see the circle starting to go. Um, I can go on and on about his story. We love Anthony. Uh, here's another individual. Her name is Lu Yang. Lu is a Chinese student. And Lu came to this country uh, as an exchange student. She was going to study her master's at Michigan State University. We have about 1,000 Chinese at Michigan State um, it's nice. We have about 800 Koreans. It's great. We have Korean restaurants that I go to around there. Lou, Lou came to this country an, an atheist, an agnostic at best, and she was standing at a bus stop right there on Grand River, right by our church. And the same gentleman that gave Anthony Bible studies. Okay, now if you ever meet Carlo, you, you'll, you'll see him here. He's wearing a purple jacket. He has he has one arm. Okay. He's, he's a trumpet guy, um, Haitian, maybe you've seen him, but he's just really gregarious. And so he, he's the one that led Anthony to Christ. And so it just so happened that Lou was at this bus stop, and guess who was there? Was Carlo. Okay, Carlo's there. And he's been trained, okay, we train our students how to be evangelistic and how to be win, a winsome witness. So he, Carlo's standing there, you know, minding his own business, and he, sees, and he sees Lou, and she's holding, I think it was a Catholic catechism that someone had given her. She was curious about other world religions. So she's holding a catechism, agnostic, doesn't believe in God. And Carlo looks at her and he's like, hey, um, is that a catechism? She's like, yeah, you know, someone gave it to me. And Carlo is always prepared. He, he ordered on his own from Vistaprint his, his business card. And on the business card, it says, answers to life's most difficult questions, free Bible studies. And he has his name and email address. So he has his card in his pocket, and he's ready, okay? So he's like, yeah, yeah. He said, hey, he said, my name is Carlo. He said, I want to give you this card. He said, if you have any questions about the Bible, I uh, I offer free Bible studies. She's like, oh, okay. And and he's looking at what bus number she's about to get on, because he wants to go on with her so he can continue to talk with her. But then she's going in a different direction. He's like, oh, no. And so, so she went off. She emails him a couple days later. They sit down, have Bible studies. Pastor Daniel starts studying with her. And uh, she was baptized this February. Can you say praise? I mean, she, she, she went from the bus stop to baptism in seven months. Seven months, this, this young lady, okay? We baptized her this February. She went, she, she went back to China because she had to... Um, go back there after her studies she's going to a seventh day Adventist um, church out there doing medical missionary work uh, I- incredible she came to this country an atheist and is leaving an Adventist can you say amen I mean this is remarkable what's happening and and you know, our church is being transformed by by what's happening because they you know and, and people are telling me that that have been a part of a you know, the, the local church there for 30 years they said we've never seen anything like this you know never all right I mean, don't tell me that evangelism doesn't work okay ellen white there said there's hundreds of people that are wistfully looking toward heaven just just looking for for something more and here is somebody that that was that was reached in a tremendous way because someone had the audacity to ask if they were interested in personal bible studies So, A few more stories. Uh, This is Michelle Odima. Her her story is a little bit different because she came to Michigan State as an Adventist, but as a backslidden Adventist at best. She didn't want to come to church. She just wanted to meld into the woodwork and uh, enjoy the, the secular lifestyle that Michigan State had to offer. One of our... Um, student workers ministered to her um, she, bec- she was converted, accepted Christ and, and then was trained how to give Bible studies and she had a roommate that wasn't Adventist. So she gave Bible studies to her advent uh, to her roommate and then her roommate her right here Renee uh, became Adventist okay so she was baptized and then she became, uh, she was previously our Adventist Student Fellowship president. Then she became our Adventist Student Fellowship president. So then uh, we we believe in the philosophy: as soon as you come in, we flip you. All right. So it's you know, baptism. You know, we don't want you to just sit in the pew. We want you to become a worker. So we started training Renee how to give Bible studies, and and then we went out door to door in Spartan Village, which was uh, is a, a community nearby of of students that are living in some apartments and. Um, so she started giving Bible studies to someone that she met there, and, uh, so she, uh, she met Taryn, and, uh, and then Taryn, Taryn was baptized, okay, and then she, last year, she was our student president, happened a student fellowship president, so you, you can see what happens, it's like, uh, so it went from Michelle, Michelle witnessed to Renee, she became our student president. Then Renee ministered to Taryn, and then we started to train Taryn. And then Taryn, this February, had her Bible study contact, Elva. Elva was baptized um, as a result. And Elva is, right now is giving Bible studies as well. So you can see just the, the remarkable um, difference that this is making in the lives of individuals as, they are, as they're moving forward. Um, just I, I could tell you some other stories as well. Um, but for the sake of time. But I think you get the, the picture of some of the things that can take place through campus ministries. And there is nothing more um, beneficial to your Christian experience than than sharing the gospel with others. Desire of Ages 195. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary. I, I really believe this. And one person said, you're either a missionary or you're a mission field. Those are, those are the two options. You're either a missionary or you're a mission field. And this is something that has been lost in in the church today, is many people assume that uh, you can be a good Adventist and not be a soul winner. Soul winning is not a spiritual gift. It is something that's required of every person that comes to Christ. All right, All right so let's move on um, here. I have a few more quotes, and then we'll go to the philosophy. Every soul that believes the truth is to stand in his lot, saying, here am I, send me. Every soul whom Christ has called, has rescued, is called to work in his name for the saving of the lost. To save souls should be the life work of everyone who professes Christ. All right. So I'm going to share with you a little bit about some of the things that we're doing. Now, this may not apply in your local context, but I want to give you some principles that you can use, perhaps. Um, Our church is called the University Church. We call it U-Church for short. We're two blocks from Michigan State University. I've been there seven years. And these, this is some of the things that we do. Uh, we believe in something called immediate Christ, uh, commissioning. That's Pastor Justin Kim there. Um, he's a part of our church as well. And this is Carlo. But we, a- after every baptism, we lay hands on the person. This is Anthony in the center, the son of the Baptist minister that's getting commissioned. And what we do is we baptize them, and then we call our church forward afterwards, and we lay hands on their shoulders, and we commission them from, for ministry. We don't ordain them, but we want to lay hands on them and pray for them that they would witness to others as well. And this has become an important part of our ministry. Um, no sooner does one come to Christ that there is born in his heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving, sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. Another thing that we do is intentional discipleship. As soon as they're brought in, we start to begin the process of teaching. One of the tools that we use is Fast Missions. You can look this up online, a wonderful curriculum. The philosophy is a mini seminary in every church and it anchors the person in Bible memorization. And so this is one of the things that we do. Um, It really comes from the overall philosophy of Ellen White From testimonies to ministers, volume seven, seven nineteen. The greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God and not to depend and to depend on Him, not the ministers. All right, this is a paradigm shift. And this quote from Minister of Healing has been one of the guiding principles in our church. Many would be willing to work for God if they had been taught. How to begin. They need to be instructed and encouraged. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, how to conduct and teach. um, Sabbath school classes, how to best help the poor to care for the sick, how to work for the unconverted. There should be schools of health, cooking schools and classes in various lines of Christian help work. There should not only be teaching, but actual work under experienced instructors, Let the teachers lead the way in working among the people, and others uniting with them will learn from their example. One example is worth more than many precepts. So this is a principle that really has been lost, and it was there from the inception of Adventism, but the concept that every church should be a training school for Christian workers is not something that is prevalent in the church today. And so at at our church, we started something called Bible University. And it's essentially applying the principles of training centered churches, and we have a classroom setting in which we teach people how to give Bible studies, how to defend their faith, how to how to pray, how to study the bible and um, it's been surprising the response that we've gotten from individuals because so many times we baptize someone and then we just leave them in the pew to to vegetate, and Bible University has become an integral part of our curriculum at our church. Another thing that we believe in is mentoring while ministering. We believe in going out with our students and people that are giving Bible studies. And this is principle is really from Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Then he appointed 12, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So notice the two parts here. He sent them out to preach, but notice that in Christ's method of discipleship, it was that they might be with him. They ate with him. They saw him give um, the most powerful sermons in history. They associated with him for three and a half years. And through that association, the entire landscape of history was dramatically changed. Um, We also use some elements of of, um, resources that we send our students to uh, Emanuel Institute, which is Michigan Conference's version of AFCO. Uh, we have campus ministries. Um, we send our students to JuIC. There's a sponsorship that we go through our church and uh, youth impact. And this is the principle that we follow of immersion. So we want individuals to have a compressed time where they can be taught that would and not normally happen uh, except for a long duration. So Emmanuel Institute is something that we send our students to. There's a 10-day program in which they get about 80 hours of training, um, which would be impossible um, in that short period of time without something like this. So we do partner with these other ministries as a local church. Let me share with you our evangelism cycle, and I would recommend that any person that's associated with the university follow a cycle in principle like this. We follow the school calendar cycle. So in the fall, we do our sowing. Those are where we get our Bible studies. We generate our Bible studies in the fall. And then in the spring, we have a 12-night reaping meeting in which we reap in the Bible studies that we've gotten. We're going to have a reaping meeting in February. So this is the way that you want to do it. You don't want to have your reaping meeting in the fall because the students are just getting there. So this is the pattern that you want to follow if you are associated with a university. You do your fall sowing, your entry types of uh, programs, and then and then you do your 12-night uh, reaping meeting or a longer evangelistic series. This this year we did a, a longer five five-week one, um, and then and then in the summer we focus on discipleship. We send our students to. Um, canvassing programs or intensive training. So this is the pattern that you want to follow for a school calendar cycle. So fall, sowing, spring, reaping, and summer discipleship. Um, Another thing that we do on campus is we have a booth. Um, It doesn't look like this anymore. We've revised it. Um, But this has been one of the most effective ways of generating Bible studies that we've seen. Um, And we just set up a booth, and these two people here are standing there with a clipboard, and it's a very simple survey. And at the end, they're asked if they want to give Bible studies. And we have, from time to time, uh, never come away from one hour of doing this at the student union without having at least one Bible study. Sometimes we've had up to 13 Bible studies just from this, this booth. And we've had baptisms as a result. Uh, one instance was, um, oh yeah, the one, uh, Elva, the last person that I showed you that was baptized was actually from, from the booth. Um, one other story, um, uh, she, was, uh, she came to the booth and uh, took a survey. She really didn't want to take the survey, but she ended up signing up for Bible studies. And as she was being given the Bible studies, her husband was listening in the other room, Anyways, we ended up baptizing both of them, and it started with, with the booth where, where the initial contact was. So it's just it's just remarkable some of the things that uh, can be done on these university campuses. All right, so we've kind of moved very quickly through that. i um, have got about 20 minutes in this session to go on, and uh, sorry if I went a little bit fast, but I wanted to make sure to go through the philosophy of evangelism. So the first session, we're going to talk about the philosophy. Second session, the practice and the third session, practice as well, okay? So this gives you a little bit of a backdrop for what we're going to be doing here today. All right, so philosophy of evangelism, and this is the question that we need to ask ourselves if we're going to have the motivation for going out and reaching someone. the philosophy of evangelism is being questioned today, even in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, because people say, "Look, why should we go out there and sheep steal? Okay, we should minister to the unchurched." Um, there, there's people in our church today that say, "Oh, we sh- we really shouldn't do evangelism. Let's just reach out to our Adventist students. Let's let's focus on socials and." and uh, pizza parties, not not that saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves, but there's a different mentality when it comes to campus ministry. It's not evangelistic. And I think that the undergirdings of the foundation of why we should be out there trying to win souls has been lost. So this has to be the, the driving force behind campus ministries. And this, this um, next slide shows you a little bit about where we as a denomination are heading. <clears throat> Not everybody, but they say that with every passing generation in a movement, the identity is being lost and the, and the movement becomes more enculturated. And in one of our more progressive magazines, they gave top 10 reasons why they're a Seventh-day Adventist. Okay? And this was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it tells you a little bit about the rationale for why people are Adventists in the first place, and 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 I'll be honest with you, I'm a fourth generation Seventh Day Adventist. Um, I was born into this church. Okay, my grandfather is a pastor, and so with every passing generation, some of that identity is lost. And this this person is sh- sharing with us top ten reasons why they're a Seventh Day Adventist. And It's kind of jokingly, but it's kind of the truth in, in, in a funny way. Okay, top ten reasons. Number ten: I don't want to miss Sunday football games. All right. Number nine. My Pathfinder Honor Sash is not yet filled. I have too much tithe invested. It's from an investment standpoint. I'm addicted to superlinks. Um, I have a set of Bible study storybooks and an Eric B. Hare recording of Mr. Crooked Ears. I want to see how the great controversy turns out. That holistic thing. I love my Adra T-shirt. Have a lifelong subscription, and I'll leave out the magazine to an Adventist magazine the people. I just love being a part of a worldwide family. Okay, now these are not bad reasons, but these are more cultural reasons. Now, if this is the reason why you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you're not going to have a lot of motivation to share the gospel with somebody because it's a culture. It's a club. It's a social gathering in which you like haystacks and veggie links and you like pathfinders, but these are, this is more the husk of ad- Adventism. And there's so many Adventists today that really lost the identity of who they are and why they are who they are. And so when you ask them to share their faith, like in campus ministries, and you're on this, this huge secular mecca on campus where you have postmodernism, atheism, agnosticism, everything, every type of ism under the sun, and you, share them, you ask them to share their faith, and they're like, why? Why should I? Okay? Why should anyone become an Adventist? matter of fact, I don't even know why I'm Adventist. Okay, so this really has to be the underpinning. Before you have method, you have to have the why before you have the what. Okay, and this this has been something that really resonated with me because at a certain age, I, I thought to myself, you know, if I was born a Mormon, I'd probably gone to Brigham Young University, right? Been a Mormon pastor. I don't know. If you, if you never have that question, I'm born a Baptist, you'd be a Baptist, and there's many Adventists today that the only reason why they're Adventists is because they were born an Adventist. And they grew up in this culture. And this is all they know. And this is what they're comfortable with. And we have a generation of Adventists today that say, look, let's keep the culture because that's what I'm comfortable with. But let's take out the heart of it, all right? Our doctrines, that's just, you know, that's, that's that was 1844, that was Ellen White. But, but Adventism has changed today. And they say, oh, let's, let's keep the culture, but let's change the core, OK? So this is where we're at. Um, just a breakdown of where we are at today. This was a number of years ago, but Christianity makes up about 33% Islam. Non-religious is 16%. Hinduism is 14%. And, and when you look at it, this makes up about a third. But you look at Seventh-day Adventists, we're right way down here, we make up a very small portion of the third of Christianity. The majority of this is, is Catholic. It's 1 billion. And then the other billion is, is Protestant. But, um, This is just another breakdown of it, and we need to ask ourselves why in the plethora of world religions today and in the plethora of Christianity, Christian denominations, why the identification with the Seventh-day Adventist Church? So you have this breakdown, Roman Catholicism, 1.1 billion and then you go down. This was a number of years ago, we're more than that right now. But you just see, even if we were 17 billion or so, whatever it is right now, compared to the other Christian denominations, we are a small minority. And this is a question that we need to ask ourselves before we do campus evangelism or any evangelism of that matter. Do you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved? Does anyone want to venture out and say that? Anyone? No? Anyone want to say you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved? Then why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? I mean, this is is a question that I have to ask myself. Okay, if you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved, then why be a Seventh-day Adventist at all? Now, please don't leave at this point in the seminar, okay? This is... (laughs) Oh, Pastor Shin's, okay. Um, but yeah, this is a good question. We need to ask ourselves, if you don't, like no one in this room raised their hand saying that you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved, all right? Then why be a Seventh-day Adventist at all? It sure seems like we're going through a lot of trouble for nothing, doesn't it? I mean, just come on. I mean, like, oh, wow, this is one of the more strict denominations in our church. But but if, if other people are gonna be saved just like we are, we all arrive at the same destination, why make it harder on ourselves, all right? So so the answer is is no, Okay, Now this, is, this strikes at the core the driving force of, of whether you have motiv- motivation to do evangelism or, or, or not because this is the thing. Then why do evangelism? Right? If the Baptist out there is going to be saved just as much as me and you don't have to be an Adventist to be saved why should I go through the trouble of trying to make them, not that we make them, but trying to convert them to Adventism, when in reality you don't have to be an Adventist to be saved at all. And and people have to think through this, okay? Now, this was kind of like a, a, a moment of uh, just a lot of angst for me when I was going through this thinking process. Because... It, it, it really strikes at the heart of who we are as a people, okay? And I've come up with three reasons. Now, there's more than that, but these are the fundamental reasons why I believe we need to do evangelism and why there's an urgency to do evangelism, all right? Now, follow me. We have a few minutes here. We might have to bleed over into the other, other section a little bit, but... Um, This is important because method means nothing if you don't have an understanding of why. Okay? You can go through all the methodology you want, but if you don't know why you are doing or why you should be doing this, it, it really takes away from any type of motivation. And, okay, so, of course, the nature of truth uh, John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The part I want to focus on there is Jesus said, I am the truth. Okay. Jesus did something a little bit different. Typically, we think of truth in propositional terms, but here said, he said that truth is his person. All right. You cannot separate truth from the person of Jesus Christ. All right. And there's been a lot of lies told about, about Jesus. There's been propaganda by the devil. He wants us to have a wrong picture of Jesus. And there's a proportional relationship between truth and the optimum value of that relationship. Let's say you're in a marriage relationship, your, your marriage has to be built on truth. All right. If it's, it's, if it's built on a foundation of lies, uh, it's, it's going to fall apart. Let me give you an example of this. A friend of mine I went to high school with, um, she got married shortly after college, had a wonderful marriage down in South America. He was an upstanding businessman in, in the town. She came to find out that her relationship was all built on lies. Uh, he was not an upstanding businessman. He was a member of the mob, Okay. And their marriage was a cover for his offshore mafia dealings, all right? And you can imagine where she was in her relationship. That that marriage was over after that, okay? Who she thought she was married to was was not, and her whole relationship was built on a foundation of lies. And this is the way that we are right now in, in our Protestant world today. They have a relationship with Christ, but much of their relationship is built on what? It's built on lies. It's built on lies. Hellfire, that's a lie. The belief that God burns and roasts and toasts people throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, okay, just, just the fact of hellfire changes your relationship with God. So that's not an optimum relationship, all right? So people say, oh, it's all about a relationship. Well, what does that mean? You can't have a relationship with someone if it's built on a fabrication. So let's look at the relationship with God. So you can go to someone and say, yes, you love Jesus, but I want you to have the optimum relationship with Jesus. The falsehood about death, the falsehood about hell. These are all caricatures that have been put forward by the devil. And so if you want to have an optimum relationship with Christ, you need to know what? You need to know truth. And this gives me motivation as Seventh-day Adventist to to give Bible studies to somebody. Okay, so this is the why. All right, the nature of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right, so let's go to another concept. We're going through the motivation for evangelism. We said that we don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved. And why be a Seventh-day Adventist at all? And we're going to go through some of those reasons uh, very quickly here. Let's talk a little bit about truth and growth. Mark chapter 4, verse 25, 4, verse 28. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, okay? Jesus is illustrating that the Christian life is a progression that is compared to the life and trajectory of a plant. Um, This is a fascinating uh, analogy that Jesus is using. You'll see that many times Christ used agriculture as a parallel for the Christian experience, Jesus is saying that the Christian experience can be compared to development of a plant. Okay, now I want you to follow me. If you follow Christ's illustration, he says that the soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. It tells you that the Christian experience is a process. It's a progression. It's not static. It's dynamic. There's growth. There's development. So if you can compare it to the the beginning, so this is where the Christian experience begins. This is the new birth, baptism. But there is to be a growth, and then the Bible says, then the mature grain in the head. This is where God wants us to grow as a Christian so that we can bear fruit. Have you heard that term before? Okay, so the purpose of the Christian life is to be born and then to grow. If you compare it to the development of a person, a person is born, but that's not the end. Now, it's the miracle of conception. The person is born, but... A mother does not just take a baby and say, oh, you're born now, all you have to do is just, let's just put the baby on the shelf. There has to be a development of that baby. Now, if a baby stays a baby, okay, they actually have diseases like this, doesn't grow, we say that it's, it's, it's a, there's a malfunction, right? Okay, so it's not just being born, you have to grow, and if the baby doesn't grow, there. We call it a disease, and it's the same thing with the Christian experience. And I'll tell you where evangelicals are today. Evangelicals stop right here. They say, oh, new birth, just accept Jesus, and that's it. That's it. You're saved. Praise God. Let's let's appreciate what Christ did on the cross. Now, I want to validate and appreciate it here, but it's incomplete. All right? There's a progression that is involved in this process and notice what happens when Jesus comes a second time in the book of Revelation. He's sitting on a cloud, and what does he have in his hand? He has a what? I heard it. He has a sickle. Okay, now the question is, when do you pull out the sickle? Do you pull it out? Now, for those of you that garden, do you pull out the sickle? Now, we don't have sickles today, but you get the point. Do you get ready to harvest when the, when the thing sprouts? You're like, oh, I got my sickle. No, right? You pull out the sickle when the plant has developed and grown and developed what? Fruit. So when Jesus comes a second time, who is he coming for? He's coming for a group of people that have matured as a Christian and have developed the character of Christ. That's why he's coming with a sickle. All right, Ellen White goes on in Christ's Object Lessons, page 65, and she uses this analogy that Jesus had. In the book of Mark, the germination of the seed represents the beginning of the spiritual life, and the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace. There can be no life without what? No life without what? Without growth. The plant must grow, either grow or die. As it's true, as... as, as its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Now, the Bible has a different picture of perfection than, than the Greek mind. We think of perfection in state of a, as far as a static point that you reach. But you can be perfect at every stage. Okay, you can be perfect at birth, perfect in growth, and perfect at maturity. Um, At every stage of development, our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. As our opportunities multiply, our experience will enlarge and our knowledge increase. We shall become strong to bear responsibility, and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. All right? Our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. Now, this is the question. What helps us grow as a Christian? Sanctification is growth. That's the equivalent. Justification can be equated to the birth of the Christian. Sanctification is character development and growth. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So if you want to use an analogy, the thing that helps us grow, the fertilizer that helps us grow as a Christian is, is truth. Okay. I've met individuals that become a Christian, and in a very short period of time, they pass people that have been a member of the church for years. Have you seen that? They're baptized, and then suddenly they're this powerful preacher for God. They just came out of nowhere, all right? And I have to ask myself, what was the difference? How is it that they were just like on miracle grow? It's like... You know, they, they just surpassed. The, the issue was, or, or the difference was, their response to truth. As soon as truth came, they accepted it, and they would grow. All right? And this was the secret of the Christian life, Fundamentals of Christian Education, 432. There is no sanctification aside from the what? Aside from the truth. There's no growth without truth. We alluded to this earlier in Revelation chapter 14, verse 16, then he, Jesus, Who sat on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. So, when Jesus is coming the second time, he's coming for a group of people that are spiritually mature. And that maturity is impossible without truth. It's impossible to prepare for the second coming of Christ without truth, because truth is required for for growth. All right. Now, we're going to transition to the last reason here, and this is going to take a little bit of time. Um, So, we're going to take like a five to seven minute break, and we're going to continue on to our second hour here. So, I'm going to run out to use the restroom and then i'll be right back <laughs> all right so so five to seven minutes you don't have to leave but uh you can uh step out or come back or whatever but uh we'll take a five to seven minute break and then we'll continue on so the first session we're dealing with philosophy then the second session we're going to deal with more of the practice of campus ministry and evangelism and we will be right back in just a few minutes here five to seven minutes um we'll be back This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 Conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.